Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. Today's podcast is a tale of redemption. Oh, at least it is, if you like, traditional music. At the end of January every year, Scots all around the world come together to celebrate our national poet, Robert Burns, with a dinner and party. And with the ever-growing popularity of Celtic culture in general, malt whisky in particular, non-Scottish people are also getting in on the fun. For many years now, here in my town in provincial Norway, Burns Night has been marked by the local Malt Whisky Club, and on several occasions I was asked to be the Master of Ceremonies, being probably the only Scot in Frederikstad with a kilt. Well, in that connection I have a confession to make, something that, today, I'm not very proud of. I remember making one address to the guests, in which I said that Scotland and Norway had a lot in common, including, I said, our attitudes to our national instruments. The Scottish bagpipe is an instrument you love more and more the further away it gets from where you're standing. And in Norway, people are willing to move house to another valley entirely to get away from the hardange fiddle. It got an easy laugh, and as I say, I'm not proud of it. Although the bagpipe part still holds true, I reckon. But the hardange fiddle... Well, for that jibe, I'm today going to do penance. What I once thought was a squeaky, moaning, whining abomination, I have come to love. <laughs> and I'm going to try and persuade you to give it a listen. The Hardanger Fiddle is the magnificent and mysterious queen of Norwegian traditional music. And the truth of the matter is, of course, that the two instruments couldn't be more different. To appreciate the bagpipe, you do need to put some distance between you and the huff-puffing performer. With the Hardanger fiddle, you really need to get in tight to get right up close and feel those good vibrations. It was my partner, Sonia, who broke down my resistance. In one of the first summers we were together, she wanted us to attend Landskapleiken, the national folk music competition, because there was something there she thought I ought to know about, something that was important to her. Now, look, I wasn't completely green. A few years earlier, I was a singer in a vocal group, that sang Norwegian folk songs. And for one concert in a tiny venue, we had a guest musician. His name was Knut Hamre. And he was a wonderful player 
of the Hardanger fiddle. During the concert he played sitting on a chair, we singers standing behind him. I could follow the flutter of his fingers, the balance of his bow strokes, all at a meter's distance and breathing down his neck. And what made a striking impression on me was the effect of the understrings. The Hardanger fiddle has four strings, just like a violin, but in addition it has a set of extra strings, the understrings, that resonate in sympathy with the other four. So, without being touched, these extra strings are set in play by vibrating along with the main strings. Close up to the harmonies bouncing out of Knut Hammer's fiddle, I was mesmerised. It was like a folk music jacuzzi with unexpected jets of harmony caressing you from unexpected angles. Very nice. But look, that was one evening. I was still sceptical. I'd been badly infected, you see, by the famous Oslo arrogance. For most of my years in Norway, I'd lived around Oslo and picked up on and copied the snide way in which metropolitans disparage the Norwegian rustic, often in crude caricatures of a dancing idiot with his bewildering dialect, flamboyant folk costume and hardanger fiddle. I'd gullibly accepted that its art was unsophisticated. In fact, since it was never seen or heard in mass media, I'd assumed the instrument was near obsolete, a museum piece. When we met, Sonia thought my cultural radar poorly calibrated, and this got me to wonder whether a smokescreen had been floated by urban petroleum economy Norwegians who, in all their lustrous modernity, are revolted by any reminder of how recently they'd all lived down on the farm. So, in one of our first summers together, she took me to Landskapleiken, the national folk music competition. Seven hundred people on plastic red chairs, a hundred more stand where they can, along the sides, all waiting in the darkness of the cavern, far below the social surface, uncoupled from the gears of daylight. Well, it's actually a sports hall, and along its back wall a temporary stage has been erected. It is garishly lit by theatre spots hung from aluminium trusses, I'm sitting beside Sonia, and we're at the cream event, the Hardanger Fiddle competition. We're off to one side, and looking back to the centre, I can see the first rows of white faces looking up at the empty stage. There's nothing in the way the audience is dressed that suggests it's a special occasion. These people might have dropped in while out on their weekend shop. But it is special. I pick it up elsewhere, in tense body language, in excitement that frizzles up from the packed rows into the vast shadow air above. The 800 have been drawn to the tiny village of Vogel, tucked away between mountain ranges and equally distant from Oslo, Bergen and Trondheim. The 800 are elated. 
the outright muscularity of their presence in this enormous cavern spins them dizzy with social significance. I'm struggling to take it in, to be honest. I've been completely unaware of this community's existence. This pulsating crowd, hungry for the delicate and decorative music of the Hardanger fiddle. They are a sort of aesthetic wing of the rural population of Norway. We're halfway down the roster of competing players, but it's first now, now that Uttar Korsa is to play, that the sports hall fills to the brim. I've worked in concert halls all my life in various ways. I enjoy a bit of spectacle and drama. But here, there's none. Lighting effects? No. The settings have been locked in for the weekend. Spectacle? No. The master of ceremonies introduces each competitor in a flat monotone. The virtuosos slink self-consciously across the stage and perform their 15-minute programmes. Will it be the same routine for Uttar Kosa? Perhaps a sense of occasion? Maybe he will strike a dominant pose at the microphone? No, he seats himself on a plain wooden chair. No mic. Or, infected by the excitement in the hall, he'll throw back his head and attack the first bars with all the uninhibited fervour of a pastoral Paganini. No. Not only is there no flourish at the start of Corsa's programme, for me there's the conundrum of knowing when it has actually started. The musician tunes and checks and retunes and runs off a bar or two of melody and then tunes again and runs off a couple more bars and now also rehearses with the dance rhythm of the melody in his feet. Tap, tap, lift, tap, tap, lift, tap. Oh, hang on. I think we're actually off. Dance music, yes, but the melodies are delicately ornamented with intricate detail. Corsa has his head down, almost slumped over the instrument. It's not tucked under his chin, but balances on his upper chest. At times he turns his head, cheek almost resting on the tailpiece, so that his ear is down, close to the strings, listening listening to the sigh and moan of the set of understrings that resonate in sympathy, resonate markedly with any bold stroke of the bow. Oh yes, then the understrings sing out with their underlying sizzle of spicy dissonance. At first there are no other sounds than those coming from the acoustic instrument. Then, out of the hush, the hall takes on subtle organic life. Life that emerges from a background field of charged energy and grows into a muffled subterranean pulse. 
Hundreds of people are keeping time with the tiny movement of a foot. And tap, lift, and tap, lift, and tap, lift. The darkened hall is holding its breath, but its heartbeat is distinct. Perhaps no one else hears it. Sonia and everyone else around me sit transfixed on Uttar Korsa. He's still a young man, mid-thirties, but his wiry body, pale features, receding hairline, speak of abandonment to the high disciplines of his craft, the taut obsession it craves. There seems to be a fragile cocoon of magic holding him, and Corsan never breaks the membrane, never looks up at the judges, the audience, the ceiling. I sit and wonder at the illusion of ease with which he crossed the stage at the beginning, for his fingers and bowl were no doubt already straining towards a release of this tense energy. His musicianship is faultless, his virtuosity breathtaking. Typically for Hardanger fiddles, the fingerboard and tailpiece are inlaid with mother-of-pearl that glows in the spotlight, and the body is decorated with swirling black garlands. Compared with the violin, it is tuned higher and has thinner strings, sounding youthful and light-headed, prosecco rather than primitivo, perhaps also female. The best instruments have names such as Droningen, the Queen, and Seetrienta, the Milkmaid. It's dance music, yes, but the exotic rhythms, ancient scales and its sheer otherness exert a muscular magnetism. The pulse seems never quite to hit the beat but to float in a permanent state of syncopation, like tight jazz it sucks you in, (laughs) body and soul. The cross syncopation is complex and compelling, a larger wave of basic pulse breaking up into tiny, uneven wavelets. When attempting to describe the music of the Hardanger fiddle, Norwegians seize on the word dorm. It means an atmosphere, a taste of something old and ethereal that actually defies being put into words. In Britain, audiences return to cathedrals for evensong or a candlelit carol service at Christmas, hoping to feel that dorm that oozes from the heritage of the event. This otherness of the fiddle, this strange magic, seems to bend historical time. It prolongs a sensation of falling headlong through her frail snow bridge into a stream of ever-flowing heritage. Corsa has finished his first piece and is retuning. Sonia tells me why the lack of spectacle, the lack of drama, is all part of the... dorm. Actually, there's plenty of drama, she says. You're just not picking up on it. 
It's all about inheritance, the continuity of local styles. There's no written music. The heritage is all, not the musicians. They're self-effacing, humble, and subordinate themselves to their art, perhaps as much like priests as artists. For it's a language of deep culture, and all the players identify with dynasties and places. Most have surnames that tell this audience exactly where they come from. Their valley, their farm, their father. There's intense rivalry between regional styles. Suddenly, I get it. What she tells me sends me back to my first visit to the Aran Island of Inishmore and to one starry, windy night when I broke a late-night walk by taking shelter in a secluded bar and heard there, for the first time, the style of singing known in the Irish West as Shanos, old style. I may have been the only non-Irish speaker in the house, other tourists having recoiled from the unlit country roads. For much of the 19th century, the speaking of Irish was banned in the country's national schools, and the music of Ireland's people has had to muddle through under the disapproval and prohibition of ruling classes and priests. Traditional song in Irish became, therefore, ever more narrowly confined to the Catholic peasant class that was pushed westwards, westwards and a large proportion of these Irish poor were compelled by poverty to flee even further west than the Atlantic coasts of Connemara, Donegal and the Arran Islands. That night, the soulful Shanos ballads were performed by a young woman alone. She had her eyes shut and seemed entranced in the universe of the song. Melancholic modal lines were offset by fluid, florid ornamentation, the singer sliding between notes or giving her melody inflections of microtonality and ornamental trills. If you've heard the old songs along Ireland's Atlantic coast and the slow pieces of the Hardanger fiddle repertoire, it's impossible not to notice the similarities. The dorm that Norwegians struggle to put into words is felt by Irish speakers on hearing their shanos. And in both cases, they seem to be living expressions of deep and hidden culture below the surface of their host countries. His fiddle is tuned. Uttar Kosa is ready. 
Now he's chosen a piece of unexpected lyricism. Out pours a quiet and dark stream of melancholic melody graced with the delicate ornamentation that pervades all Hardanger fiddle music. My thanks to Uttar Korsa for letting me use his recording of Högsetbänken, which is a springar after Müllerguten. You'll find all the details about the music used on this podcast on my website. Next time, Roald Amundsen was a driven man. Was he driven by a kiss? But for now, tusen tak for att du hörte på. Thanks for listening. <laughs>